Time then to turn back to the bond markets and my recent conversation with Reese Davis, manager of the Invesco Bond Income Plus Investment Trust, ticker BIPS or BIPS, which, as it happens, is a technical term much used in the bond markets. It stands for basis points, which is essentially how bond traders describe a one penny move in the price of a bond. So in other words, uh, one hundredth of one percent is a BIP. Reese Davis has been uh, working in fixed income for 20 years and has been manager of this particular trust since July 2014. I began our conversation, which was held before the latest Federal Reserve meeting at Jackson Hole in Wyoming, which often produces policy statements that uh, are of great interest to bond investors. But I began by saying to him that bond investors don't generally like too much excitement And there has been an awful lot of excitement in the bond market over the last 18 months with this very sharp and sudden increase in interest rates and bond yields. So what, Reese, do you make of these dramatic recent developments before we go on to talk about the outlook from here? Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, exciting is the word I would use. We all know now what happened in 2022. Last year, inflation, which is the nemesis of bonds and the bond market, turned out to be a lot higher than most people had expected. That coincided at the start of the year with bond yields being at very low levels. And, you know, if I look at the high yield market in Europe, for example, that was only offering a a yield of 3.4% at the start of 2022. By the end of the year, it was around 8%. So that is far more exciting for income investors like ourselves. So a lot of pain felt by bondholders last year as we moved from low yields to high yields. You know, that shouldn't be played down, but it does leave us or has left us in a very good position now in terms of finding income in the market. And also, I'd always point out the beauty of a bond is that they will recover back to a price of par or 100, which is where bonds are typically issued at their maturity date, so long as a bond issuer does not default. And we we started this year, the average bond price in European high yield bond market, for example, at just over 85 cents on the euro. So similarly for this bond portfolio, starting the year with an average bond price well below part, it means it's an exciting time for not just income, but also we're in a position now where bonds can offer not only that that income, but also the potential for capital upside over time as they move back towards part. Yes, you're right. So this has been, uh, as I say, a very eventful period in, in the bond market, but a lot now depends on whether or not we actually reach the peak in the interest rate and bond yield cycle. Do you have a particular view on that? Are we near to the peak in the cycle? I think we are near the end of the cycle. We are seeing some signs that the rapid, and it has been very rapid, very aggressive, rate hiking cycle that we've seen may be nearing an end. If you look at several emerging market economies, for example, over there, they're starting to ease monetary policy now, as in they are looking to pause or even cut rates. And they typically started the process of, of tightening or raising rates earlier than we did over here. So you can certainly criticise the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank for having been late to the game, but then they have been very aggressive in how much they've raised rates. So if you think of the UK, we've gone from a quarter of a percent for the base rate to five and a quarter percent today in, in a little over 18 months. If we look at some of the markets within the bond market that look specifically at forecasts for where interest rates are going, so interest rate swaps, um, without getting too technical with it all. But in the UK, that market is pricing a peak rate of just below 6%. 
And I think we have to also be very cognizant of the fact that there is the potential for a time lag of monetary policy. So it does take time for hiking rates to then pass through into an impact in the real economy. And given the aggressiveness and the pace of that tightening, I think it's important not to get too carried away with the idea of uh, soft economic landing, which is what a lot of the market is now getting more excited about. The flip side to that would be if we are moving into a weaker economic environment, that means rate cuts, essentially, and that's going to bode well for the bond market. Where this trust is focused is the high yield bond market. And what's more important there, actually, is the economic outlook. So we're treading this fine line between the two at the moment in the markets that, that we're operating So there are two very different potential outcomes here, which will have a different impact on the bond market. If the central banks have done too much and something breaks, as the expression goes, then we could see a risk of recession, and that may well lead to yields coming down and therefore capital gains for bondholders. Or we may have this soft landing. Perhaps you could just explain in a little more detail what a soft landing is and why people in the market think that's a possibility. It's quite rare, isn't it? It is rare, yeah. And it's an optimistic outlook and markets and and people, I think, do like to be optimistic. Essentially, it is a situation where we see inflation tempering. And I think we're seeing signs of that for sure. The outlook is starting to look better there. So it's inflation coming off its recent highs and moving to something that is less scary and less concerning for us all, at the same time as not having a rapid rise in unemployment and a slowing of growth. That would be your soft landing. Uh, And the reason that people are becoming more optimistic this year about that is a lot of the data, in particular around unemployment, and the US is the biggest market for bonds. And so... A lot of focus is on what is happening in the US. And if you look at US employment data, well, it's not looking too bad at the moment. There aren't really any signs that a recession is hitting. The concern with that approach is it's a backward looking approach. There's a lot of data that shows that the unemployment figures suddenly will turn and suddenly we have the proof that we are in a recession. If you look at some of the leading indicators, there's an index called Leading Economic Indicators Index in the US. If you look at that, then that is starting to look more concerning in terms of the economic outlook. So from my perspective, you can overlay what you're seeing around you. If you think about what is happening in the mortgage market in the UK, for example, and and the, the rapid increase in the cost of mortgages that we've seen, although we have a lot of mortgages in the UK that are fixed rate for a period of time, it still has the potential to hit the economy and to hit spending. That's what I mean about not getting too carried away with this idea of a softer landing. So if we look at your portfolio, what kind of yield are you generating? And what is the potential total return if everything in the portfolio was to return to par and you held it for as long as you owned it? Can you give us any kind of rough indications around those sort of numbers? A lot more than 18 months ago, that's for sure, or two years ago. There's a few different ways to think about the yield on the portfolio. The easiest and most useful first way to look at it is the dividend yield. So the income that the portfolio produces, this is an income focused trust. A lot of shareholders own it for the regular high level of income it produces. So the dividend target is 11.5 pence per share. On today's share price, that's around a 7.1% dividend yield. That's the first way of looking at it. However, that dividend is more than covered with the income that the portfolio is generating. So that 11.5 pence is more than covered. The additional income will then be kept in the portfolio and reinvested. 
The next thing to think about is the average price of the portfolio. That's around 87 today. So well below par. I mentioned earlier, bonds are issued at a price of par or 100 typically, and that is the price at which they're redeemed at maturity. So you can see there the upside over the next four and a half years, which is the average maturity of the bonds in the portfolio. So there's the capital upside and the income. To put those data points, if you like, into one figure, and as bond investors, we talk about the gross redemption yield. And essentially, that is just a yield that combines the income and the potential for capital upside into one number, which is the gross redemption yield. On the portfolio today, that's around 9.8%, so pretty high. That's a rough guide for it. And then, of course, because we have gearing in place in the portfolio, the NAV is 20% geared again to create that portfolio. So essentially, you can multiply that 9.8% by the 20% gearing. So by 1.2, you get to something closer to 11.5% or over 11.5%. So that is your average yield, if you like, over the next four or five years. So much, much better picture than we've had for income investors for many, many years. I've been doing this for 20 years. And what I'm seeing in my markets is something that you know, yields that look more like the yields that I was used to when I first started and, and the yields that I was trained to believe that a high yield bond should be paying investors. Yes, well, we've been through a very strange period when, of course, we had negative interest rates for a while. And it hasn't really happened in living memory, the kind of experience you have for the last decade leading up to uh, two years ago. And that's something which I think investors need to bear in mind, that we've been living through a very abnormal period. So that 11.5% is the current geared potential in the portfolio, which is obviously a very positive number if you think that inflation is going to come down. Certainly, if it's down to 5%, which is in the UK where the government is looking for and the Bank of England is looking for, that's still a very positive real return. And of course, if it goes back to target 2%, that's even more attractive. So these are very high potential real returns. But of course, that's partly because a lot of bonds you invest in are what we call a high yield. They're not investment grade bonds, so they have greater credit risk. So what would one typically expect to see? If one thinks about government bonds, perhaps over the course of history, having a real return of somewhere between 1% and 2% maybe, you add on the extra risk of high yield or junk bonds in some cases, as people call them. What kind of extra premium would you expect to be paying on average for high yield bonds? And then we can compare that back to where we are today. First of all, what is a higher bond? Well, it comes down to the rating. So it's not actually to do with the yield on offer. I mean, they are higher yielding than investment grade, but it's the rating. And the ratings are decided by rating agencies looking at the credit profile of the issuer of a bond. So for this portfolio, around a quarter of the portfolio is invested in investment grade rated bonds. So I'll just make that point. And the average rating on the portfolio is double B, which is high quality, high yield on the whole. Going back to 2003, when I started in the market, 7 8% was a perfectly normal level of yield to expect from a high yield bond for the risks of investing. The risks of investing in the high yield market are that these companies have leveraged balance sheets. So they have more debt on their balance sheets and that creates more risk for those companies. So that was the compensation that you would get. And you're right, we can also think about that in terms of the spread. So the additional yield over a government bond. Today in Europe, we're at around the 400 basis points or 4% spread over a government bond for a typical higher bond. It's okay. It's not as 
tight as we've seen in the past, and it's not as wide as we've seen in the past. I do like to think about the high bond market as having to pay a level of yield, though, the outright compensation for those risks of investing. Those risks are potentially heightened in the environment that we could be facing, which is a weaker economic environment. So we have to be very careful of that. We have a team of credit analysts, and their job is to really understand the credit profiles of the companies that we're investing in, and then for us to make a decision as to whether the yield is sufficient compensation for the credit risks of investing. So the higher bond market, there are risks, but we deal with those risks through very good credit analysis and also diversification. So having holdings from lots of different bond issuers within the portfolio. More recently, yields in the higher market got to very low levels in 2020 and 21. And if you were looking at this part of the market, you would have heard people saying there's not enough yield compensation. So bonds were being issued sometimes with coupons that could be as low as one point something on the coupon, two or three or four percent was very common for a high yield bond. Today, those borrowing costs are typically going to be two, maybe three times higher than what those companies were paying back in, say, 2021. And there's lots of examples now of companies returning to the market post the repricing of yields to higher levels last year, and they are paying a lot more in terms of the coupon. So a name that people will be familiar with, BT issued what's called a corporate hybrid bond a few weeks ago. This is callable in five years. It is high yield rated, but it's very high quality high yield, and and BT is still investment grade rated on the whole. This particular bond is rated high yield, and that's paying 8.375% for those five years. A few years ago, that would have been 4 or 5% coupon, but that's how much things have changed. So this is the art of managing a bond portfolio, is to balance off the risk against the yield, though... Obviously, if you're running a bond fund, it's not as if the whole thing is going to be wound up at a fixed point in the future. We might come on to what's happening elsewhere in the sector because that actually is happening in one or two cases. But in general terms, running a bond fund with a running yield of the kind you have, I mean, you've got to stay invested. So you have to go with the market and you have to take the swings of the market to some extent, do you not? Which is why you had losses last year. So um, how do you manage that? And what have you done in terms of changing the mix of the portfolio over the last two years, as we've been through this difficult period, uh, we're coming on to uh, what is potentially could be quite a rewarding period. You make a good point. It's an investment trust. It's a fund. It is supposed to be invested in the market. And when the market has a terrible year like it did last year, it is going to impact performance. And it did. The way that we would approach that, though, and the way that we did approach it is towards the end of 2021, and that was the tail end of an incredibly strong period. So we ended up with yields at very low levels towards the end of 2021. Markets weren't really concerned about inflation. Central bankers were telling us it was going to be transitory, etc. For us, the low levels of yield in the market meant that we were pretty uncomfortable with what we could invest in. So fewer and fewer opportunities where we felt that that risk reward, that level of yield reward that we get for the credit risk of investing didn't make sense. So it was tough. And what naturally happens in a period like that is that the portfolio becomes more cautiously positioned in terms of the credit risk we're taking. The rate sensitivity starts to come down. We call that the duration of the portfolio starts to come down. 
to put it into kind of simple terms, which is how I like to approach things, when a higher bond is issued with a coupon of, say, two and a half or three percent and a maturity of seven years, you can imagine there's a lot of sensitivity to rising interest rates. So that bond was being issued with a, a coupon of two and a half percent. You can now earn five percent on a two year UK gilt. So the change in price that that bond has had to go through to reprice to a yield that is offering a spread premium over equivalent government bond, it's been quite traumatic. So positioning the portfolio with relatively cautious on the credit quality and then also thinking about avoiding bonds like that coming into 2022 did actually set us up quite well for the year. Throughout last year, we were able to invest liquidity in the portfolio into bonds as they became more attractive. So we were starting to see better quality bonds that before were trading at very unattractive yields, trading at attractive outright yields. So adding those into the portfolio, feeling quite comfortable about doing that because we weren't having to go too far down the risk spectrum to get good yields again. And also rotating out of those bonds that had performed well in last year's environment. So maybe a shorter dated bond that was less prone to moving around in price with everything that we saw, selling those and rotating them into bonds that were starting to look more attractive than they had done at the start of the year. Uh, And then also we're looking at the new issuance market, and that's very important for us as well. So companies that are returning to the market and issuing bonds and no longer being able to issue at very low coupons, And like I mentioned, having to issue with much higher coupons, they're great for us to be putting into the portfolio. So the changes that we've seen, we've gone from a fairly cautious portfolio, uh, low duration to over the course of last year, still staying quite cautious, but actually starting to invest more into the market and, and duration naturally increasing as we've done so. And I think it's a much better place today to have slightly higher duration, higher rate sensitivity with the potential for rates to be falling in the hopefully near-term future. If we could just put a number on that, what has happened to the duration of the portfolio over that period since the end of 21 to today? I mean, you can use a single number for duration. It doesn't necessarily mean a lot to most people, but uh, can you give us what those numbers would be? So at the start of last year, the modified duration of the portfolio would have been around the low threes. So the modified duration essentially is saying, what would the price move be on the portfolio for a 100 basis points or 1% move in yields? So if it is, I think we were maybe around 3.2. So if it's 3.2, then a 1% move up in yields would lead to a 3.2% decline in the price of the portfolio. So modified duration tries to put that into a number. It's a kind of a theoretical figure. And there's lots of other things happening at the same time in the portfolio, but it gives you a sense as to the rate sensitivity. And then today we're closer to 3.8 and we could go a little higher, say to 4 or slightly above 4, which would still be below, say, the investment grade market or a government bond market, uh, an index of government bonds. Let's just talk about the other elements of the portfolio. Obviously, uh, this trust is a trust essentially for sterling investors, but yet you've talked about Europe a lot. And you invest in both UK and European corporate bonds. What is the rationale for that? And what is the split between the UK and Europe? And uh, how has that changed, if at all, over this period? So this is a sterling-denominated fund. 
listed on the stock exchange in the UK. And we have a natural tendency towards sterling denominated bonds. The only issue there is that the sterling high yield market, for example, is fairly small. You know, relative to the European high yield market, it's perhaps a quarter or a fifth of the size. And then the European high yield market itself is a third of the size of the US high yield market. Nevertheless, there's still plenty of opportunities for us in that space and also in sterling investment grade, sterling bank capital bonds, you know, financial bonds, that's quite an important part of the portfolio. So we're around 55 to 60% in sterling, maybe a quarter-ish in US dollar issuers, and then maybe 15 to 20% in euros. And I'm giving kind of ranges there because that's where we've typically been over the last few years. And it will vary according to the opportunity set. So going back to this point about UK high yield, because it is relatively small, it's more of a niche market. And there are times when investors shy away from that part of the market, and that can create some nice opportunities for us. And there are other times when it may become more popular, and we may look to diversify away from that relatively high exposure to sterling. You know, the European high yield market, the bulk of the borrowing for that market happens in London. We're based in Henley on Thames, but yeah, it happens in the UK. So the European high yield issuers will come over to the UK. They will have a roadshow that is meeting UK based investors and they will be expecting to have the majority of their bondholders to be based over here. So what that means is we get good access to those companies as well. So they're quite important to have in the portfolio. Then, of course, we have the US market where everything is just bigger anyway. You've got some very, very big high yield issuers over there. And, and we will look at those and put those into the portfolios. And this portfolio is one of, call it 25, that we manage across the team. And it's a relatively small portfolio within the team's assets under management. But it does very well in terms of being able to benefit from the resources that we have across the whole team. So just a quick point on hedging, first of all. So you do hedge some of the currency risk, but not all of it. Is that correct? Yes, the majority of it. So as of today, it's just over 90% hedged. So all of that euro exposure, all of that dollar exposure hedged back to sterling so that we're not taking currency risk. I quite like having a little bit of dollar exposure because in a real risk-off environment, the dollar does tend to perform against sterling. So having maybe around 5% as of today of our dollar exposure that is not hedged, uh, so essentially giving us some exposure to the dollar, that can be a nice risk-off hedge. But on the whole, it's about hedging away that currency risk. Well, you mentioned an interesting point there, which is you manage a lot of fixed income funds as a firm. The question is, what advantages and what disadvantages do you see when you're investing in high yield market through an investment trust, which, as you said earlier, has a potential for gearing at the trust level, as well as the implicit gearing in some of the things that you own? So are you guaranteed to have a more volatile ride, essentially, if you invest in the high yield market through an investment trust? Does that follow? Obviously, it's an investment trust. And as your listeners know, the share price can or does move independently of the net asset value. I can control the net asset value. So the portfolio that I put together, minus the gearing, shouldn't be any more volatile than the rest of the market. Obviously, when you add gearing onto a portfolio, you are amplifying the market moves one way or the other. That's the nature of using gearing. The advantages, I think, of being able to have a high yield focused portfolio within an investment trust structure 
I think it's great. You know, I struggle to see the disadvantages. I think the advantages are it's closed-ended. That means I'm never under pressure to be selling when I don't want to be selling to fund redemptions, for example. That means I can really focus on just taking a long-term view and also acting boldly during times of market stress, which is what we did when COVID hit. We were in a pretty good position to be aggressively buying during that period and picking up some really attractive looking opportunities. So closed ended for any fund manager, it's the ideal way to manage money. You can really stick to your guns with your investing. And then, as you say, the ability to use gearing, it's connected to that first point, as in, I would find it pretty scary to be managing an open ended fund that had gearing. So where clients could take their money out. And I've got to deal with the gearing as well as selling bonds to fund the redemption. So that I don't think my nerves could cope with. But an investment trust is perfectly suited to have some gearing. It has to be managed prudently. We've got a lot of experience of managing gearing on the desk. So the two predecessor trusts did have gearing. We had a very close call during the financial crisis. We learned from the fact that we had too much gearing going into that. And then what we have done since is managed it in a way that I think is prudent and has now been proven through a couple of quite severe downturns, especially I'm thinking the period in March, April 2020 when COVID hit. The other point, of course, is being able to set a dividend target. So for this fund, we have a dividend target and it's presented very simply in pence per share. It's 11 and a half pence. Every quarter when I meet with the board, we'll have a discussion about, are we comfortable that we're going to hit that target without me saying that I can do it, but I'm going to be taking more risk than I'm comfortable taking. Right now, we're in a good place. There's plenty of income out there to cover the 11 and a half pence. Let's just then look at the history of the way that this trust has traded. Its predecessor trust, at least the one that's got the continuous history, I think would be uh, City Merchants High Yield Trust is what it used to be called. For quite a long time, that traded at around power or small premium. And then since the pandemic, there was a couple of years when you tended to trade, I think, on average at a small discount. But now you're back trading at a modest premium, about uh, 1%, I think. What is your approach to that issue about uh, discount control? Does the board have a policy there? And is it actually appropriate for a bond fund to have a discount control target? You've given a good potted history there. If you look back over the past decade, we have spent most of that time trading at a premium, which is great. And the whole investment trust sector did go to that discount when COVID hit. And it was quite hard to break out of that again. We had these fleeting moments of trading close to or slightly above NAV. And then at the end of last year, thankfully, that has returned to a premium. And I'm pleased to say, getting on for a year later, we're still there and we've been issuing shares along the way. I think discount management is just very hard and it's a very hard thing to get right. And I certainly don't envy investment trust boards in trying to navigate that. It is a board decision. It's not for us or me to decide, but certainly I am consulted and would have input around what I'm thinking of the market. I think the BIPs board have done a very good job of remaining alert to the situation. So no explicit discount management policy was put in place. But I've no doubt that if we traded at a discount again, then they would go through that same diligent process, consider all factors, and also do that in consultation with what we're saying about the market and why we're potentially trading at that discount. So if I can talk to you just about the investment trust sector as a whole, the debt and loan sector, there's about a dozen companies in there, and you are the largest. 
as it happens, and yes. uh, you've got the best 10-year track record, as it happens, and you're the only one which is currently trading at a small premium. You also have, I think, possibly the highest gearing as well. So you, at the moment, at least you're in a very good place uh, in competitive terms. And we've, we've learned a lot about a number of trusts in the debt sector, not just the mainstream debt sector, but some of the more arcane specialist areas. We've heard about trusts winding up or merging. Is that mainly because do you think they're deemed to be subscale, not big enough to attract attention of investors? Or is it some other factors, the way that they're perhaps they're in slightly more obscure sectors, some of them? They specialize in particular debt instruments. Uh, I think it was something like Axiom European Financial Debt, which uh, had a particular focus on one type of bond. What do you think is going on in the sector as a whole? And presumably you're hoping you can take advantage of that by uh, maybe issuing more shares and growing larger. I can't talk for decisions that the boards are making at other trusts. Our experience with the merger of the two predecessor investment trusts, I guess, offers some potential clues. So we we managed both of those for many years since before the financial crisis. So they were essentially trying to do very similar things in terms of income. But both boards arrived at the view that it would make sense, and especially considering they had the same manager, to at least discuss a combination. And then once they did that, they decided that they would go ahead with it. And hence, BIPs was formed uh, a couple of years ago. I think the logic for them was it wasn't around performance. You know, both were performing well. They were obviously happy with the manager, thankfully. One of the pushbacks that we had from larger potential investors was around size and it was around liquidity. The ability to put, say, anything more than a million or two million to work, that was a concern. Client meetings that I've had over the years with those types of investors, they've spoken about what's the right size for an investment trust? Is it 250 million? You know, there was always a an idea as to the figure and it was always seemed to be bigger than those two predecessor trusts were. So with that in mind, I think the boards were focused on, look, you've got one manager managed both of these, a lot of similarities, kind of going about it in a slightly different way, but arriving at a similar end result. Would it make sense to combine? We could offer investors potentially better liquidity. We could offer investors certainly lower operating costs because there are economies of scale for being a larger vehicle. It's roughly similar costs, but spread amongst a wider base. And I think that was the main thrust behind our merger. We certainly would like to see the trust grow. I'd like to see the trust issue shares. And we have been issuing shares over the past several months, which is great. It's a nice position to be in. So, yes, we'd like to be able to grow. Let's hope that we can continue to issue shares and do so. Finally, I just finished with another outlook question. What is the biggest risk facing your trust as you look ahead from where we are today? I think it has to be a major economic slowdown, a hard landing. We try not to manage with a conviction view of where the world is going because there are intelligent people on both sides of the argument. What we will always do is manage the portfolio with the potential downside risks in mind. And that is what the portfolio currently is doing. We have avoided the temptation to go into the riskier parts of the higher bond market, for example. So they are the bonds that are rated typically triple C or the weaker bonds that are rated single B. We're also looking at a company's ability to be able to afford much higher borrowing costs. That's a big issue for everyone right now. Even if we have a nice decline in inflation and a relaxation of bond yields, the borrowing costs 
that companies have got used to over the prior few years are certainly not returning anytime soon. You know, never say never that, that we don't see higher bonds issuing with 2 or 3% coupons again, but certainly not anytime soon. So those companies that borrowed with a 2 or 3 or 4% coupon, our analysts need to be looking at them and saying, well, when those bonds come up for maturity over the next few years, can this company afford to be paying twice the amount or three times the amount of coupon? In some cases, that's looking quite a stretch. So our analysts are thinking about, can this company survive a couple of years of a tough economic environment? And can this company survive being able to issue bonds at a significantly higher level of borrowing cost? And if the answer is yes to those, we can think about keeping them or adding them to the portfolio. And if the answer is no, then right now, we've been through the process of getting those out of the portfolios. So that was Reese Davis, the manager of the Invesco Bond Income Plus Investment Trust. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.